Well, good evening. Thank you for coming back this evening. I know it's Father's Day and I know the weather's been reasonably good and it's very tempting just to stay at home. But uh, it's lovely to see you out and I appreciate Adrian's words of welcome and the invitation. Uh, I have four kids uh, from 22 to 29, two boys and two girls. They were complaining that I took a a booking on on Father's Day. They had arrangements. Uh, They complained last Sunday that I took a booking because it was my birthday. And uh, I've got to the age where they want to cook and and entertain. But uh, I I was away in Shankill while you had Clifford here uh, last Lord's Day. And I pointed out to them in Shankill that I uh, was getting old. There's a nine in my birthday now, a nine. I'm not 90. (laughs) I wonder could some of the young ones guess my age. It's either 29. Why are you laughing? (laughs) 39. No, shaking his head. 49, 59, 69. He's nodding. (laughs) I'll see you afterwards. What is the age I am? For, did you say 49? You're I, just lovely, brilliant. <laughs> I am 59. 59 last week. Is 59 old? Oh. When I was a teenager and I met somebody in their 50s, I thought they were really, really old. And now that I'm in my 50s, of course, I realize that I was wrong. <laughs> a man left last Sunday in Shankill and he said, Michael, you're 59 today and you're still one of the youngest here. <laughs> and in Shankill Baptist, that might actually have been true. It's great to see so many young people and boys and girls at church on a Sunday evening. I encourage you to come out to church and to listen to God's word. It's great to see you. We're going to turn to the little prophecy of Nahum. Now, see if you can find that in the Bible. We don't often turn to the minor prophets, and particularly not on a Sunday evening. Little prophecy of Nahum. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum... Get to Daniel and keep going right. I was interested in what the children's talk was about this morning. And I made reference very briefly to Jonah. And I've been thinking about this little prophecy. And I want to turn you to Nahum and it will become obvious why Uh, when we think of Jonah. Let's just read the first nine verses together of Nahum in chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger 
and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and dryeth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make another end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make another end. Affliction shall not rise up for the second time. Amen. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. Now let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for another Sunday evening that finds us in your house. We pray just now as we turn to your word that you will open our understanding. You will give us attentive ears. That you will help us just to concentrate on what it is that you would say to us. That as your children we might be encouraged. And if there are those that are not yours, that you will open understanding. Show them their great need. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love to read uh, about revivals. I was reading about the Welsh Revival in 1904 and what some of the newspaper columnists were saying about it, how they had interviewed some of the people and how their lives had been changed, the impact it had on the towns, uh, on the places that people went, and the, the impact on the churches. But one of the columnists said this about Wales. He said, despite the revival... It did not put a stop to the gradual decline of Christianity in Wales. The revival was tremendous. There were over 100,000 people saved in that Welsh revival. And yet this newspaper article made the point that there was still a steady decline. And that was the case in the city that we've read about this evening. We thought about Jonah briefly this morning. Daniel mentioned it in his children's talk. There was a tremendous revival. The greatest revival recorded for us in the Old Testament. You remember how the sin of Nineveh, that great city in Assyria in the north, was came up before God and he had determined to judge them. And he sent his servant Jonah... Of course, we know that Jonah ran away, a disobedient servant. He was called to go to Nineveh and to preach a message of repentance, but he didn't do it. He went down to Joppa, and then he went down into a boat, and then he went down into the sea when the sailors realized he was running away from God. And then God prepared a great fish, and he went from the sea down into a great fish. And then we read in in Jonah in chapter 2 that 
the fish took him down to the moorings of the sea. He went right down to the foundations of the mountains. He went down to death as far as he was concerned. His path was away from God and it was a continual decline. He went steadily downwards. But then God, in his mercy, brought him back and and threw him up onto the dry land on the third day. After Daniel had cried out that great verse in in chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And Daniel, or, or Jonah went and preached, did what he was told the second time, and preached that message of repentance. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the prophecy. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown by God. And the king made an awesome decree. Be amazing if any king alive today made a decree like this. The king in Assyria, the king made this decree to the people of Nineveh. You must not eat. You must not drink. Your animals must not eat or drink. You must put on sackcloth. You must repent in dust and ashes. You must cry out to God and perhaps God will relent from the judgment that he has planned to bring upon this city. What a decree from the king. And Jonah records for us, That the people in Nineveh cried out to God and repented of their sin. And God spared the city of Nineveh. We read there of 150,000 men and women and young people. And Jonah records for us. And the livestock. All were saved from judgment. What a revival. 150 years have passed by the time we get to Nahum. This city that had such an amazing revival has now completely backslidden. God's word is no longer preached. The Assyrians have gone back to their old ways of attacking God's children in Judah. They've gone back to their sinful ways. As this columnist said about Wales, there's been a steady decline in Nineveh. And again, the sin of the people in that city has come up before God. And so he has decided that the limit has been reached. There are limits with God. And for Nineveh, the limit of their sin has been reached. And God is sending judgment. He's going to destroy the city. He gets Nahum to write an oracle, a letter. It's the vision of Nahum. We know very little about Nahum. This is the only place in Scripture we read his name. We believe he came from Judah in the south. His name is is a shortened version of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, we know, and and we're all, after this morning's children's talk, good uh, Greek and Hebrew experts. 
And we know that from his original name in the Hebrew, it means the comfort of Yahweh. Nehemiah means the comfort of Yahweh. Nahum's name is a shortened version of that. That simply just means comfort. Nahum's name means comfort and he is sending a letter that means destruction. Is it a contradiction? Why does God pick a man whose name means comfort to send an oracle that means utter destruction? Well, the comfort wasn't for the people of Nineveh. The comfort was for God's own people. If you look in verse 15, uh, or sorry, in, in ver- yeah, down in verse 15 we read, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee, he is utterly cut off. This little prophecy is a prophecy of comfort, not to the inhabitants of Nineveh. It's a comfort to God's own people, because what God is saying is, I'm going to destroy your enemies. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. I'm going to cut them off, and they will no longer come and trouble you. It's a terrible little prophecy in that regard that the only comfort here is to God's children in knowing that their enemy is going to be obliterated. There's no remedy. There's no hope this time. There was hope the first time when Jonah was sent. There was opportunity for repentance. There was 40 days and God relented. That's not the case in Nahum. Look at the very last verse in chapter uh, 2 of of Nahum. Chapter 3, verse 19. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brood of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? There is no cure. There is no healing. There's no opportunity for forgiveness. This is the limit as far as God is concerned with Nineveh. Let me give you three simple thoughts though because in this oracle there's so much that we can learn about God. Let me suggest first of all from verse 3 of chapter 1 that God is patient God is patient. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord is slow to anger. You know, it's a good thing that God is slow to anger. You talk to people at times and they they talk about doing something wrong and being hit by a bolt of lightning. As if God immediately judges sin. What is clear here is that God was patient with these people. 150 years of decline. 150 years of apostasy. And God steps in. I wonder how long God has been patient with you. 
How long have you been listening to God's word and never responded, never thought that it was important for you to take God seriously? We live in a country where there is a lot of religion and a lot of people attend church. And yet for so many, they have never taken that step of putting the Lord Jesus first in their life, of making him Savior and Lord. There's a great danger in religion. There's a great danger in just going about like a believer and yet having never put your trust in him. It, it terrifies me when I read in Matthew that in the last day many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There are many who think they're okay with God. They're right with God. But God in his patience is giving men and women and young people opportunity, space to repent. He has given the Ninevites an opportunity. Many years. And yet what has become clear is they have gone right back to their old ways. They were ruthless. They were known for going into the towns and villages in Judah and for killing God's children, the Israelites, and for cutting off their heads. They would have put them on poles. And at the end of the battle, they would have done a head count. We think of a head count in trying to work out how many people are here. They did a head count at the end of their battles to work out how many people they had killed. They were ruthless. And God had had enough. He was not ignorant of their sin. He was not turning a blind eye to it. He saw it, and he has drawn a line. We think of the word deadline. I don't know if you know the origin of the word deadline. It goes back to the 1800s, the American Civil War, when there were not great prisons. And soldiers would be captured, and they would be put in a field, and a line would be drawn as a boundary inside a hedge, And that was the deadline. If a prisoner stepped over that line, the guards were allowed to shoot them. And so it became known as the deadline. God has set out for Nineveh a deadline. Nahum is writing an oracle saying, enough. It's time. God's patience has now run out. He has given them 150 years. We thought this morning about Noah and how he built an ark, how he preached for 120 years that men would repent. It's a long time. I think we've agreed here that 59 years is a long time. 150 years is three times that. A long time. We read in 1 Peter concerning the times of Noah that God, who formerly were the, the people who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved, God provides opportunity. And yet, so often, there are few that are saved. 
That was the question the disciples asked the Lord. Are there few? Are there few? And in this day in which we live, there are few that are being saved. And yet God is being patient. Is he being patient with you? I wonder, is this your deadline? Is tonight your last opportunity to get right with him? My spirit will not always strive with man. Don't take God's patience for granted. The Lord is patient, but the Lord is also just. Look at the end of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Will not at all acquit the wicked. To acquit means to declare free. To remove guilt. If you're in a court and you're found guilty, there is a price to be paid. But if the judge declares you not guilty, you are acquitted. Well, what Nahum is saying here is that the Lord will not at all acquit the wicked. Well, who are the wicked? It's an old word now, really, isn't it? It's a word that has changed. For young people now, wicked is something that's quite cool. Well, in the Bible, wicked is sinful, falling short of God's glory. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What is the prophet saying? God will not just acquit those that are wicked. He'll not just turn a blind eye to sin. He'll not just forget that you have sins. And you know, the reality is that all of us, without exception, from the youngest to the oldest, have all sinned. In thought, in word, in deed. My four kids are 22, 24, 26, and just turning 29. I didn't teach them to sin, but they all inherited their father's sinful nature. You know, on Father's Day, I remember my father and all that he meant to me. But he did give me his sinful nature. He passed that on to me. We can discuss the morality of that. But the truth is, I inherited my my father's sinful nature. And because of that, I am guilty in God's eyes and under the punishment of of death, under a death penalty. God is just and will not turn a blind eye to sin. He is just, but he's also the justifier. And there's a beautiful sense here in which Nahum is saying, the one who is just, who will make no mistakes, is also a good God who is able to save. I wonder this evening, can you point to a time in your experience when you asked Jesus to save you? You recognize that as a just God, he is holy and he will not just overlook your sin. I was only a child 
whenever I put my trust in the Lord. I was in Glengormley in the uh, church at, at uh, Glengormley Baptist and I'd been listening to uh, an old pastor preach and I couldn't tell you exactly what he preached on but I remember coming home and getting down in my bedroom and asking the Lord to save me. I was young but I knew that I was a sinner and that I needed to be saved. God is just and he will not just look over sin. We need to repent. If you look at Nahum in chapter 9, you will see that in God's justice, he is going to finish with the sin of Nineveh. The Lord's voice crieth, sorry, if I'm in the right chapter, what do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Nineveh's sin would not be forgiven. And there wouldn't be a second chance. There will not be another opportunity for Nineveh. Because God is just. Many people ridiculed the the little prophecy of Jonah and the little prophecy of Nahum. Because nobody could find any evidence that Nineveh existed. Up until 1850, there was no evidence of any city at all. And then archaeologists in 1850 found remains on the east bank of the river Tigris. And they started to dig. And they found a huge city. A city with 15 main gates. A city that had a palace of over 100,000 square feet. A city with many relics. Even the remains of a zoo. And interestingly they found skeletons. They found remains of people in the streets. And then all those that questioned the very existence of Nineveh had to accept that Nineveh as a city was destroyed and that there was a battle and that people died in the street. Just as Nahum had prophesied, God was just and would not acquit the wicked. And yet we can see here as well that God is just, but God is good in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust him. He is patient and he is just, but Nahum says that God is good. The day of trouble here speaks of a day of judgment. And the reality is that there will be, as we said this morning, judgment at the Bema or judgment at the great white throne. You will either meet the Lord in your sin or you will meet him as his child. How will you stand before the Lord? What will you say in that day? talks about vengeance in verse 2. The Lord revengeth. 
talks about vengeance on those that will come before him. Not revenge, righteous anger. I don't know if you watch the cricket. I'm a golfer, not a cricketer. I, I find watching cricket a bit like watching paint dry, but I turned on for just a few minutes when they were interviewing Stephen Fry at the beginning of the Ashes. It reminded me of an interview I watched with him in RTE. Perhaps you watched it. The interviewer asked Stephen Fry if there is a God. Of course, he's, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. But he said, if there is a God, what will you say to him when you meet him? Stephen Fry said, when I meet God, I will say to him, how dare you make a world that's so evil? I will tell him he is stupid for allowing people to have cancer. And he goes on and on about what he's going to say to God when Stephen Fry meets him. God is a good God. He is righteous. He is holy. And when men stand before him, the word of God tells us they will be without excuse. And they will be silent before God. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even Stephen Fry. How will you stand before God? He's not just going to overlook your sin. But we're told here that he does know those that are his. He knows them that trust in him. It's one of the few verses in this little prophecy that bring great comfort. The Lord knows his own. Does he know you by name? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Isn't it good to be known by name? Does he know you by name? My father passed away maybe 15 years ago, said to me as a child, do you know the most well-known verse in the Bible? And I said, John 3.16. My dad looked at me and he said, Michael, I want you to put your name in that verse. As a child, I stood and talked to my dad and I put my name in it. For God so loved Michael that he gave his only begotten son, that if Michael should believe in him, Michael will not perish, and Michael will have eternal life. Never forget that. His father got him to do that when he was a young boy. It reminded me again today that my father wanted me to know Jesus. This would be a great Father's Day 
if we knew that our children were all ready to meet the Lord. God is good. He knows those that are His, those who put their trust in Him. You think of two men, rich young ruler and Lazarus. One is named, one is not named. Is it a parable or is it a real event? I'm not sure. But one is comforted. The one who is named, Lazarus, is comforted in heaven. And the one who is not named lifts up his eyes in hell in torments. Luke 16. My prayer this evening is that everyone in this building will be known by God and your names will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Nahum brings an awful oracle of judgment. Nineveh is destroyed and it was never rebuilt again which was a fulfillment of chapter 1 and verse 9. The remains of it have been found by archaeologists. It was a great city, but it's no more. And it's no more because the people turned their back on God and there were limits with him. Chapter 2 and verse 1, Nahum says, Watch the way. Watch the way. Look out on the road. Watch the road. Because the enemy's coming. I would encourage you this evening to look out, to watch. We're told to watch for the signs of the times. In the last days there will be wars. We're in the middle of one, aren't we? Rumors of wars. Earthquakes will increase. Famines. Children will be disobedient to parents. There will be financial hardships. There will be a turning away from the Word of God. We're to watch for the signs. And I believe just as Nahum brings this oracle on Nineveh that God would have me challenge you this evening. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet God? He's a good God. His Son died to save you. And if you turn this evening and ask Him to forgive you, He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will take away your sin. He will give you new life. He will make you fit for heaven. You will become his child. But if you do not, he will not overlook sin. He will not acquit the wicked. And one day he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why would you do that when God has done so much to save you? Why would you reject him when he loves you and died for you 
My prayer this evening is that this prophecy about the final destruction of Nineveh will be a challenge to you. My hope, my prayer, like the Apostle Paul, as he said, my crown of rejoicing is that you will be in the presence of the Lord at his appearing. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a a challenging word, a difficult word, a, a word that seems to have no hope for Nineveh. And yet, Father, we acknowledge that you're holy and that you're just and that you will not just overlook sin, that there will be no sin in heaven is a fact that we read in Scripture. And so we pray that this evening, if there are those that are still outside of Christ, if there are those that have never come and repented and put their trust in you, that this will be the night that they will come and find their way to the foot of the cross and cry, what must I do to be saved? So, Father, we pray that you will give deciding grace, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to God's Word. I know it's warm, and uh, we've nearly gone over time again. I'll not be invited back. We're going to close with the singing of 334, 334, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Saviour.